Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am so excited today to introduce Dr. Amrita Daftari. She is an assistant professor of global health at York University and a director of the social science-focused Tuberculosis Center at the Delay Institute of Global Research. She has worked for more than a decade with people impacted by tuberculosis and HIV in South Africa, India, and Canada. She's an advocate for global social change, and she also holds an adjunct appointment in South Africa at the Center for the AIDS Program of Research. Welcome, Amrita. It's so lovely to meet you today. Thanks, Carmen. It's really nice to be here. Normally, I say if I've met you before, and I haven't. So I'm just saying this is really exciting to to have you on. I'm wondering, what is your elevator pitch? If you're in an elevator with a stranger and they ask you what you do, how do you describe that? (laughs) I think you summed it up quite nicely, but um, I guess I'm... Yeah, I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. I study TB. I work in spaces in South Africa and India um, in other global settings. Um, I try to sort of look at all of the mess that makes TB and how to sort of detangle that mess using more of a social approach, a social lens, a social justice lens, and sort of raising the voice of people who live with this illness. Um, And I teach global health. I teach to undergraduate students. I mentor and supervise graduate students. I live in Toronto. And yeah, I think that's about it. I'm so excited (laughs) to keep learning more from you today. Okay, I'm going to show up. Are you in Toronto now? I am. I'm going to show up in your backyard right now (laughs) with my time machine, which has a lot of space for physically distancing. And I want to say... Take me back to the time and place where you thought, I want to study tuberculosis. Where did we go? Probably my master's degree. I was at Columbia University and I was doing a course on tuberculosis epidemiology. So it's just a course where they teach you about TB, about why it happens, who it affects, how it's treated and sort of what's happening in the world and why it's still, um, even though it's a preventable, a curable illness, why it still sort of affects over 10 million people every year. Um, So that's where I really started to get interested in TB, but I think it really, um, it just surfaced some earlier interests that I might've had because I've had family members affected by TB. I've grown up in a country where TB is very common and grew up in India. Um, And it just seems uh, a bit unjust and a bit, unusual that an illness that is preventable and curable continues to kill so many people every year. Well, I want to hear more about that. So my first question is usually, you know, why should we be thinking about 
TB and the stigma around TB, but maybe for listeners who might not know about TB, you said it, it impacts 10 million people a year. Maybe you could give us the like brief one-on-one, one or two sentences on like, what is TB and how, what, what kind of problem is it today for people in the world? Sure, sure. Yeah, TB is tuberculosis. It's an infectious disease. It's called by ba- caused by bacteria. Um, and much like COVID, it spreads through airborne transmission. So when people cough, for example, um, and if left untreated, people can become very sick. Um, they could eventually die from it. Um, and every year, we've seen this for about a decade now, about 10 million people develop this disease and about one to two million people die from it wow so um that's sort of tb in a nutshell it's preventable it's curable it exists in various forms most tuberculosis affects the lungs um so about eight out of ten people who have tb it's going to affect your lungs and affect your breathing but in two out of ten people it might affect another body organ wow and would you say that stigma matters when we think about TB and and the lives of people either living with TB or how TB might be prevented? Absolutely. I mean, stigma is just this awful, awful sort of driver of TB and also a consequence of TB. You know, it's an infectious disease. It's transmissible. It can cause death. It affects 10 million people every year. So it's no surprise that this risk of infection, this fear of death, kind of makes people be quite afraid of TB. And fear is sort of a big driver of stigma, right, of of any kind of social exclusion or dislike or disdain. Absolutely. Could you tell us more about how stigma works as a driver um, and an outcome? Because I think that's really interesting that you said it sort of works both ways. Yeah, I'll start with the second, maybe. It's it's kind of easy to see how people who have TB, who live with the disease, um, can be very easily stigmatized, right? Um, they could be seen as vectors of the illness, um, as transmitters. But these people did nothing wrong, right? The, du- the bug doesn't pick and choose who it's going to infect next. Um, you can catch TB from sitting on a bus. The issue is that even if you happen to catch it, tuberculosis exists in two states, a latent or sort of sleeping dormant state and an active state, which is actually infectious. But in about 10 people who might be exposed to the to the bug, only about one person of those 10 is ever going to develop this active disease. Wow. And And even if you do go on to develop it, guess what? It's totally curable. So this idea of stigmatizing people with TB is quite unjust, but it it stems from this fear of infection and transmission. One of the sort of uh, drivers, I say that stigma is also a driver of TB, is because of who it affects. TB can affect anybody, of course. You know, the bug can go from person to person anywhere in the world, really. But um, we see it very, very... um, heavily in populations that, in in communities that are sort of facing other social problems and social challenges, particularly poverty, um, people who live in very overcrowded conditions, where you can imagine, I mean, we're seeing this with COVID, right? It's so much easier to catch another infection. Uh, People who are undernourished, so it's easier to sort of develop the more severe active form of the disease. As soon as you have people sort of disproportionately affected by disease because of their social disadvantage, those sort of inequities become a way in which you're 
I guess, TB gets transmitted. It, it makes you more vulnerable to the disease. Um, so it's not stigma per se, I, I, should, I should sort of correct. It's not the stigma itself that's causing the disease, but it's one of those underlying insidious drivers, right? When people face inequalities and when TB is sort of emergent in communities where there's already some social devaluation, social marginalization, othering happening, it's much more likely to also get affected by infections such as TB. So it's definitely something that intersects with people who might already be stigmatized because of poverty or class, things like that. Um, that's so interesting. Could you tell the listeners, maybe obviously an anonymized story, but like, can you walk us through maybe a daily life of somebody who may be living with TB and how stigma might show up in their day-to-day experiences. Absolutely. I mean, stigma is showing up in many different ways and forms, and all of them look, I think, and feel quite awful. Um, At the most sort of obvious level, you can imagine a person with tuberculosis um, is ill, is physically ill and unwell, at least until treatment kicks in, the medicines kick in. Um, And when you're sort of physically unwell and destabilized, you're much more likely, you're more vulnerable um, to any social consequence, to any sort of um, devaluation, to anybody telling you something uh, that could sort of uh, put you, put uh, uh, demean you, right, and diminish you. So at a more obvious level, stigma appears as, uh, you know, people being called names, anywhere from dirty, filthy, lazy, because they're no longer being productive, um, demonic, in many communities, they can be blamed for getting TB as if they deserved it. They did something to earn that um, diagnosis. They could have been abandoned. They could be rejected by their families, by their social relationships, their friends. Um, sometimes it's as simple as just being physically distanced, right? Stay away from me. Nobody wants to come near you or sit with you. Um, I've spoken to so many patients who are basically locked away in one room, um, almost like prisoners uh, within their own homes. Uh, you know, separated in in ways that are sort of over and above what's necessary for infection control. Um, Nobody wants to touch you or share utensils with you. Um, Sometimes it's just inaction, right? Ignorance, like removal of support, of emotional support. There's no reason why one can't pick up the phone and call somebody with TB, but patients are very often just left to be. Even if the physical distance is removed, the social distance is sort of catastrophic because there's no support, there's no emotional support. Um, And I think what's quite awful is often this overt, this very obvious form of stigmatization comes from the people and the places that you would least expect that sort of apathy to arise from, right, And, and disdain. So, for example, as health workers, they might blame you for getting TB. Family members um, who are more concerned about their own reputations rather than your well-being. Um, Governments, if you think about it, right, who fail to sort of put in measures in place that would protect you from legal issues, from social issues, from loss of your livelihood, um, from inability to attend school or university or have sort of other options available while you're getting treatment. So stigma comes in so many different ways. I mean, in South Africa, for example, when you're diagnosed with a particular type of TB called drug-resistant TB, which is a very severe form of TB, you won't be surprised if a government vehicle shows up at your door with masks and like hazmat suits on, carting you off to the hospital in front of your neighbors, in front of your kids. 
that's that's pretty incriminating, right? It's it's stigma to an extreme. In in almost every country today, when you think about how TB is even treated, you're expected to to take your medicines being watched by somebody taking your medicines. I mean, how demeaning is that? <laughs> As if you're a criminal, you can't be trusted to do this on your own. Yeah, why is that? I know, isn't it DOTS directly? Observed treatment. Yeah. Yeah, I direct observational that. treatment. <laughs> yeah, I, I was reading about that and a colleague in, and actually in India who was doing a project on that. I think with uh, maybe people who are also people who use drugs and... And I was like, you watch people take the, the medication. What is that about? It's very archaic. <laughs> um, it totally takes away any autonomy, any sort of agency or voice from the patient. And essentially, it's it's creating a system of mistrust from the outset, right? You're guilty until proven innocent, but you're never proven innocent in TB. Um, you're considered somebody incapable of taking your medicines on time. Um, we've never seen it in any other infection. Not with HIV, not with, I don't know, some of the most detrimental of illnesses where taking treatment is really, really important. We only see this in TB. Wow. And there isn't there, now you're making me think, we have to get TB. I've had TB tests before. I can't remember what for, but I I think in Canada, I, I don't remember, but I wonder if there's some sort of testing that happens and then sometimes people maybe not won't pass the test I don't know if you know more about that than me I just have a vague memory of having TB tests multiple times and I don't know if that's because of where I've traveled or not sure yeah as I mentioned TB comes in two forms right this latent kind of act, uh, form that's sleeping in your body and there's only one in ten chance that you'll ever develop the active disease so the TB test the skin test um, it takes a couple of days for the result to be read but essentially it's checking whether you've been exposed to the to the infection to the bacillus to the to the bug and if you have then you might test positive and that just means that it doesn't mean that you have the active disease um, but you might have the sleeping disease and so, you might have to take some medicines to make sure that there's not even a 10% chance to reduce that 10% chance to 1% chance to ever develop that disease. Um, yeah. And, and when you're sort of, even when you're tested and you don't understand what the test is about, that it's only catching this latent disease, which means nothing. Um, uh, it can cause a lot of stimulate, a lot of fear and anxiety. Um, and often when you're going to uh, work at a hospital or travel or immigrate to Canada or any sort of high income country, the TB test is sort of required. And if for some reason you test positive, it's you're often sort of mandated to take treatment or pressured, if not forced, to take this preventive treatment, which is anywhere from six to nine months long. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I was in Cape Town a couple of years ago meeting with some folks and some of them are PhD students and one of them was doing a study of the centers where children with drug resistant tuberculosis are sent and they were saying that sometimes they're there for years uh, alone and away from their families and I remember being really surprised because I I never heard about that before. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. So most TB, most cases of tuberculosis, you can treat in about six months. And we're on the cusp of sort of even shorter regimens. But drug-resistant forms of TB, and you see about half a million cases every year, um, can can be quite 
more complex to treat, anywhere from one to two years of treatment. And until recently, using injections, um, you know, so Im imagine a child having to take a pretty painful injection every day for at least six months of those two years of treatment. Um, and because it's an infectious disease and quite a severe disease, they need to be removed from their home um, to be given these injections and be monitored every day. And uh, often these facilities are quite far away from people's homes. Um, there's no support given to families to visit or deliver any form of social or emotional support. Um, it's quite heartbreaking uh, for the families. It, so it's no wonder that, um, you know, mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles cannot visit this child for more than once every few months if, at best. Wow. So what do we need to do to prevent TB? And then I guess the next question is, you know, prevent the stigma around it or maybe they're connected. Uh, they sort of go hand in hand. I think to prevent TB, you need to catch it very quickly if it happens, if it's been diagnosed, if you develop symptoms, because as soon as you get on treatment, literally within a few days, you cannot transmit it. So the faster you diagnose tuberculosis and place people on treatment, you've stopped the cycle of transmission. Wow. Um, and by doing that, you're actually reducing other people from ever being exposed to tuberculosis, and you're suddenly likely to see a drop in incidence. So for 10, I don't know, 10 or so years, we've not seen any reduction in the number of tuberculosis cases that come up in the world every year. Every year, it's been about 10 million, which means no matter how much good treatment is out there, how much effort we're putting into sort of catching people and placing them into treatment and watching them take their treatment, none of that's going to really making a dent in, in the incidence and the number of new cases every year wow. because we're catching people too late. We're finding people with TB way too late. And one of the biggest reasons why we're doing that is because we're scaring the shit out of them. <laughs> Right? Like, I mean, who wants to get diagnosed with TB, given the fear, the stigma, the discrimination that they're likely to face? So you're seeing people delaying getting to a doctor's clinic to be tested for TB. Um, you're seeing people in denial. They don't even want to know that they have tuberculosis because that's going to mean a whole lot of other stuff in their you know, social world. It's really going to make a lot of chaos for them. Um, it causes so much collateral damage to their families, right? Their whole families can get stigmatized, outed, tarnished, reputations gone, job lost, um, education finished, no recourse, right? No social compensation, no social protection, legal status to be in a particular country gone. Wow. So all of these, whether they were real or perceived, they're enough to stop people from getting tested, going to health providers quickly, once they get tested, if they're diagnosed with TB, my goodness, the first moment they get to stop taking treatment, they will because they don't want to be outed. So as soon as their symptoms subside and they start to feel better, it's it's no surprise that they'll stop taking treatment because who wants to be seen at taking TB medicines and scaring the life out of everybody around them? It's, it reminds me when you say that around the stigma around HIV and how the stigma itself is a barrier to people, you know, doing what they need to do to be healthy, right? So I, I didn't realize. But HIV has made so many strides. They have done so much to normalize HIV, right? TB is still, it's kind of the oldest illness in the world, infection in the world, but it's still so feared. It is 
it is not normalized. <laughs> Why do you think that that it's still being the oldest infection is we haven't made those same strides around reducing the stigma? I think a lot of it has to do with sort of advocacy, right? Public support, political commitment. And a lot of this has to do with who is the face of a person with TB. Somebody living in a poor country, somebody who was born in a poor country, a racialized person, you know, somebody in prison. Uh, these are not people that we're inclined as a society to support and advocate for. I, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that because I was in my mind being like, I wonder where the 10 million people are living and getting infected every year. And if it was in North America or in Europe, would there be a different sort of response or maybe more kind of global awareness or 100 percent or where where are most of the cases that are in on the global south probably yeah they're in southeast asia and in sub-saharan africa primarily and then you see a lot in central asia as well um and then in all other countries you're seeing them in pocketed communities right in communities that um like homeless people prison prison populations people living with hiv immigrants there's a huge connection I, between people living with hiv and tb right and in, in, in many places yeah i mean if you look at you know the big sort of global numbers uh tb tuberculosis is the leading cause of death in people who live with hiv varies from country to country but if you look at the big mm -hmm. and a global numbers that's yeah and 10 percent of all people with tb so one in 10 is hiv positive wow wow i didn't realize it was such a huge overlap what do you want the listeners to do or to learn or to think about with regards to tuberculosis i think there's some just in terms of addressing tuberculosis stigma or just in terms of yeah, I guess I guess the fact that, you know, sometimes, you know, depending on where we're living, we, we might not know about a particular issue. So I, what I've had a lot of people, and I'm going to ask you this later too, but, but a lot of people on the podcasts have talked about different kinds of stigma, different kinds of health issues, and how sometimes the whole... Um, say epistemologies of, of ignorance is ignorance isn't really innocent it's structured that way so the fact that I don't know much about TV is because I live in a country that doesn't have much TV and we're maybe not paying attention to a huge illness that impacts 10 million people because it doesn't affect people you know in our own country something like like the fact that we might not know about TB is is not by accident right it, it, it's it's just because it doesn't impact people in, in my neighborhood, for instance, or I mean, maybe not specifically my neighborhood because my neighborhood is one of the high risk postal codes for COVID-19 in Toronto. And if I was a little bit older, I could get a vaccine because of this neighborhood, but I'm not necessarily saying my neighborhood, but like my like my place of residence yeah. in, in Canada. It's not on your radar. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's just not. I, I think the biggest thing is that TV is Seriously, it is the oldest infection that we know. It was found in the Egyptian mummies, right? Wow. But it's still, I mean, until 2019, until 2020, it was the number one cause of death caused by a single infection. HIV came and went. You know, COVID has come mm -hmm. and it will go. Mm -hmm. um, but TB is going to continue. 
it's uh, it's just the momentum, the commitment, the investment in sort of addressing TB, the disease, and the people and communities who are affected with TB is so um, sort of uh, mild in comparison to many other illnesses. Uh, so, so I think I think the biggest thing that I would want people to know is that it is a disease that is preventable, that is curable, and it is an out. It, there should be an outcry, a public outcry, that it continues to affect so many people in our world today. In Canada, sure, it's a it's a relatively smaller problem, but guess who all of those two thousand plus people who get TB every year are. They are people. Indigenous people in um, Nunavut, right? It's a huge outbreak up there. Am I right? Or Inuit, yeah. The Inuit um, communities are really, uh, really heavily sort of uh, represented in the Canadian TB epidemic. And uh, immigrants, right? Seven out of 10 cases in Canada are among immigrants. Wow, I did not know that. And you also mentioned people experiencing homelessness. And we've had a, a couple of podcasts on homelessness stigma, and you also mentioned people who are incarcerated. Yes. So it's it's always like, you know, uh, it, it's communities that we may not associate ourselves with, which we're happy to sort of think of as a disease that's affecting somebody else. Um, but I'm, I'm an immigrant. Um, I had to have the TB test as well. Um, I was targeted for TB screening and it felt quite awful. And uh, I think there's ways in which that we can sort of connect and marry these ideas of making sure the public is protected with ensuring the dignity, the respect, the humanity of people who live with TB being respected equally, right? Um, and I think when we when we think about tuberculosis, there needs to be some lobbying and the lobbying begins with people like you and I, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have to wait for a celebrity actor to come on board. We don't have to wait for our prime minister to come on board. You and I can begin this process like at home by sort of informing the people we live with and, and sort of work with um, that there's absolutely no good that comes of devaluing, dehumanizing, stigmatizing people who live with TB, communities who are affected by TB, blaming them, ostracizing them, embarrassing them. There's no good comes of it. We see like these witch hunts in the COVID era. There's no, nothing mm -hmm. comes of it. Nothing good comes of it. Yeah, by supporting people with TB, I think you're much more likely to get them to seek attention, to support them in seeking attention as quickly as possible. And it will have a direct effect on reducing the incidence, the, the amount of TB that comes up every year. I think the other message, I don't, I don't know if I can go on or you want me to. Sort of, yeah, go on, go on, please. Yeah, I, I think the other message is how we communicate information about TB. The messaging is really flawed. TB is infectious, but it's also curable. And the only message we hear is that it's infectious, you know. Ah, um, we don't hear about the recovery. We don't hear that within a few days of starting treatment, you don't become, you're no longer contagious. And, and people live with that stigma well after cure, right? A lot of women in particular, they face that stigma well beyond cure. And why do you think there's that disconnect between if you're not infectious after a few days of treatment, is there is a way the information is being communicated not effective or is there what you mentioned some of these other underlying assumptions about what tb reflects like you said oh maybe not clean or you know you know poor or, you know those are sort of the are they kind of 
gluing themselves onto the original TB stigma? Yeah, it's very hard to to stop that initial stigma, right? Once it's begun, it's like, well, even if you're better now, you're still that person with TB or had TB. The second thing is um, the health system, the, the TB system in particular, the TB community um, have not come together to sort of advocate for that, um, to sort of to make sure that people are aware of when they become non-infectious. Um, because the testing for TB is quite difficult. You know, you test using your sputum, like your, your the spit that comes out from deep down in your chest. And if it so happens that that sample didn't have that bacteria in it, you can't say for sure that it doesn't exist in another part of your body um, or in another sample of your spit. So it's, they're not willing to take that leap and say, you know what, you aren't infectious and make that Wow. There's not been enough, there's not been enough tests developed. There's not been enough resources invested in making sure that they can literally put their money where their mouth is when they say that this patient is no longer infectious. You know, with HIV, I mean, you work in that field, U equals U. Yep. And detectable equals untransmissible. That should be the model of people on TB treatment. The bacterial load has gone down. They are not transmitting the bacteria to others. They are no longer a public health threat. But that mantra is so lacking in TB. We're very, we're very sort of um, ambivalent. We're very conservative when it comes to these things. That's so fascinating because I know from having, you know, a lot of people in the HIV world and people, including people living with HIV in my research, but also on the podcast that the undetectable equals untransmissible, like the U equals U has really helped to reduce stigma, although it hasn't necessarily been reflected in the laws of even Canada, but um, it's getting the fear of the infectiousness away. So I'm really glad that you're reminding us that sometimes healthcare and what we the, the messages we promote are sometimes behind science. Like the science would is saying this person is not infectious. Yet the, the, there's a fear of telling them in the communities that right. But so that's sort of. But we're very quick to tell them when they are infectious. No problems there. Mm. <laughs> you know, no problems in incriminating people and sending that van over to people's homes and wearing the hazmat suits to tell them that they're infectious. But we're so slow to send those same health workers back. Mm -hmm without any masks, without any, you know, um, protective equipment to say, hey, you're a free agent now, wow. you're perfectly healthy. Thank you so much. You've, you've really taught me a lot about tuberculosis and I actually really want to go read some more of your work and, and the work of other people doing the advocacy. And I think it's really important to for listeners to learn about infections and diseases that impact 10 million people that that maybe we we don't know as much about because they don't impact people in our own communities or in our own country as much you know um is there anything more you want to say about tv before i go to the wild card questions where they get to the you <laughs> the, the, the real you <laughs> oh boy um no i'm, I'm scared <laughs> Fine. <laughs> so you're ready. There's going to be some fun questions. The wild cards. Wild card number one. What are you watching or binging on Netflix, Crave, Amazon, whatever your platform is? 
<laughs> well, Game of Thrones is gone, so we're sort of lost. I never saw that. I, I've seen a lot of spoofs on it, but I've never seen it. It's utterly heinous, but, you know, you get sucked right in. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm watching a show called The Widow. Oh, what, what is that about? It's about this woman who has lost her husband in the DRC and uh, is now convinced that he's alive. Three years later, she comes back to look for him. And it's got Kate Beckinsdale and she's hot. And so, you know. <laughs> depressing, though. I have a thing where I don't watch any any TV that's at all depressing. I don't know. Is it, is it, is it hopeful and uplifting or is it sort of like a mystery angst? Oh no, it's not uplifting at all. It's, it's quite damning, but for the uplifting <laughs> piece, I end up watching Pete the cat oh. who goes surfing all day and has this brother and uh, you know, they have a lot of fun in the sand and nice. do all kinds of lovely things. Is that a cartoon? Oh, it's a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. Me and my three-year-old watch it. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. We watched all of um, Schitt's Creek, and now we're on the RuPaul, RuPaul's Drag Race. So we've watched the Canada, the UK, and we're almost caught up to the US. So we're like, okay, I, I don't know. I, I only can watch ridiculous things on, um, on, on, on TV, but I like asking people what they're watching so I can learn more. So if I want to learn something about some heartbreak and loss of partner <laughs> watch the widow or pizza kind sounds fun um okay i have a second question you can go anywhere in the world for dinner with anybody you want living or dead imagine no covid restrictions where do you go and who do you take oh i would go to friendship in south africa <laughs> to a restaurant called ec which has the most utterly divine food and wine. And I would take my husband, Kevin, with me. Where is this restaurant in South Africa? It's in this little village called Franchuk, which is in wine country outside of Cape Town. And uh, we went there, I don't know, must be about 15 years ago now, 16 years ago coming, when when we were just starting to date. And we went there and had this divine meal you know, a, a meal for Fit for Kings, literally an eight course meal with wine. <laughs> um, and it probably cost us $30. <laughs> amazing service, just uh, amazing weather, amazing vista. I loved it. I would go back there in a heartbeat. It is so gorgeous there. I, I, I remember, I think it was the second last time I was there. Somebody I'd never met, but was a friend of a mutual friend from Eswatini who passed away, picked me up at the airport. And you know, it's an awkward time when you can't really check in anywhere and brought me to Camp Spay. And we, and we had like wine and like eating oysters and looking at the ocean. And I was like, this is so beautiful. It's so beautiful around that whole Cape Town area. It's so pretty. Well, next time you go, send me a selfie. Um, so my last question is, uh, is there any words of wisdom, advice, sayings, quotes that you find inspiring or have helped you that you want to share with the listeners? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. <laughs> it could be a song lyric. You know, I, I um, in TB, we've, we've started to do a lot of work with uh, engaging communities and empowering communities. And I'm really taken by uh, 
one of the mottos or mantras of the, the organization Inuit Kapuit Kanamit, ITK, their major Inuit organization. Yeah. And their motto is, um, they use this for dealing with the TB crisis, but probably in other spaces as well. Nothing about us without us. Mm, um, I love that. Yeah. So I, I, I just think that that carries people through, that carries me through, um, to just not forget the voice of the people for whom you might be doing your work, your research, your advocacy, whatever it is, um, in whatever, whatever lens you take, you know, make sure that you've incorporated that of the person who faces that illness. Thank you so much. I think that's such a, a great reminder for us, you know, who are in research or even in service provision of healthcare, social work, whatever it is, that there's human, you know, that we're working with. And, and I, I just finished this this book. I have to do the second round of revisions, <laughs> but it's on, on challenging the idea that people are hard to reach. And I interviewed people from across different countries that I've worked with. And, uh, you know, the recommendation uh, from everywhere from Eswatini, Lesotho, Jamaica, Northwest Territories, Canada, was um, to remember our shared humanity, that, that, that it's not this us and them, like, even in the way we approach, like, the work we do and, and, and our work with other people, we can be part of reducing the stigma by, by actually seeing the shared um, humanity, goals, dreams, life, like remembering this is actually a human, like just like with, with a very, who wants love and wants community and wants happiness and success in their own, whatever that looks like. So absolutely. I love that. I'm gonna thank you so much, Carmen. I might actually like make that the title of the podcast. I don't know. I, I try to I try to name the podcast after like one of the things, but I really like that that the nothing um about us without us is is really is really a good reminder. So thank you for that. Well, make make sure you credit ITK for that because those aren't my words. I well, I think it's been used in HIV. I think it's yeah. I think yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Tipa um, <laughs> greater involvement of people with AIDS is about that too. I think it's like a. Yeah, uh, sort of a call for like everybody, but I can link to them too. They're they're totally amazing. So, and so are you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Carmen. I'm gonna have a link for the listeners. Listeners, you can find out more about Dr. Amrita Daftari's work, and you know I'll try to link to something about where we can learn about TB. If you if you want to share any resources or anything like that, so we can all be a bit more informed. Thank you so much. Thanks. Have a good afternoon. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivations with stigma leaders from around the world. Mm-hmm.